Part five of A Child of the Jago by Arthur Morrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sections twenty three to twenty eight. Section twenty three. For more than a week, Josh Perrot could not walk about, and it was a bad week. For some little while, his luck had been but poor, and now he found himself laid up with a total reserve fund of fourteen pence. A coat was pawned with old Paul Ran, who kept the leaving shop in a first floor back in Jago Row, for ninepence. Then Josh swore at Dicky for not being still at Grinders, and told him to turn out and bring home some money. Dicky had arisen almost too sore and stiff to stand, on the morning after the fight at the Feathers, and he was little better now. But he had to go, and he went, though he well knew that a click was out of the question, for his joints almost refused to bend but he found that the Fatsa running boys were contemplating business, and he scouted for them with such success as to bring home seven pence in the evening. Then Kiddo Cook, who had left Mother Gaps with a double armful on the night of the sing-song, found himself rich enough, being a bachelor, to lend Josh eighteen pence, and a shawl of Hannah Perrott's was pawned. That, though, was redeemed the next day, together with the coat, for Dicky brought home a golden sovereign. It had been an easy click scarce a click at all perhaps strictly speaking dicky had tramped into the city and had found a crowd outside st paul's a well-dressed crowd not being moved on for something was going forward in the cathedral he recognized one of the high mob a pogue hunter that is a pickpocket who deals in purses dicky watched this man's movements by way of education for he was an eminent practitioner and worked alone with no assistant to cover him Dicky saw him in the thick of the crowd, standing beside and behind one lady after another, but it was only when his elbow bent to slip something into his own pocket that Dicky knew he had touched. Presently he moved to another part of the crowd, where mostly men were standing, and there he stealthily let drop a crumpled newspaper, and straightway left the crowd. He had worked it as much as he judged safe. Dicky wriggled beside the crumpled paper, slipped it under his jacket, and cleared away also. He knew that there was something in the paper besides news, that, in fact, there were purses in it, purses emptied and shed as soon as might be, because nobody can swear to money, but strange purses lead to destruction. Dicky wrecked little of this danger, but made his best pace to a recess in a back street, there to examine his pogues, for though the uxter was gone from them, they might yet bring a few coppers from Mr. Weech, if they were of good quality. They were a fairly sound lot. One had a large clasp that looked like silver, and another was quite new, and Dicky was observing with satisfaction the shop shininess of the lining when he perceived a cunning pocket at the back, lying flat against the main integument, and in it was a sovereign. He gulped at the sight. Clearly the pogue hunter, emptying the pogues in his pocket by sense of touch, had missed the flat pocket. Dicky was not yet able to run with freedom, but he never ceased from trotting till he reached his own staircase in old Jago Street, and so the eight or nine days passed, and Josh went out into the Jago with no more than a tenderness about his ankle. Now he much desired a good click, so he went across High Street Shoreditch to Kingsland Railway Station and bought a ticket for Canonbury. Luck was against him. It was plain. He tramped the northern suburbs from three o'clock till dark but touched for nothing. He spent money, indeed, for he feared to overwork his ankle, and for that reason rested in divers' public houses. 
he peeped in at the gates of quiet gardens, in the hope of a garden hose left unwatched, or tennis rackets lying in a handy summer-house. But he saw none. He pried about the doors of private stable-yards, in case of absent grooms and unprotected bunches of harness, but in vain. He inspected quiet areas and kitchen entrances in search of unguarded spoons, even descended into one area, where he had to make an awkward excuse about buying old bottles, in consequence of meeting the cook at the door. He tramped one quiet road after another on the lookout for a deaden, a house furnished but untenanted. But there was never a deaden, it seemed, in all the northern district. So he grew tired and short-tempered, and cursed himself for that he had not driven off with a baker's horse and cart that had tempted him early in the afternoon. It grew twilight and then dark. Josh sat in the public-house, and took a long rest, and some bread and cheese. It would never do to go home without touching, and for some time he considered possibilities in regard to a handful of silver money kept in a glass on a shelf behind the bar. But it was out of reach, and there were too many people in the place for any attempt by climbing on the counter. Josh grew savage and soured. Plastering itself was not such troublesome work, and at least the pay was certain. It was little short of ten o'clock when he left the public-house and turned back towards Canonbury. He would have something on the way, he resolved, and he would catch the first train home. He would have to knock somebody over in a dark street, that was all. It was nothing new, but he would rather have made his click another way this time, because his tender ankle might keep him slow, or even give way altogether. And to be caught in a robbery with violence might easily mean something more than mere imprisonment. It might mean a dose of the cat, and the cat was a thing the thought or mention whereof sent shudders through the old jago. But no, nobody worth knocking down came his way. Truly, luck was out to-night. There was a spot by the long garden wall of a corner house that would have suited admirably, and as Josh lingered there and looked about him, his eye fell on a ladder, reared nearly upright against the back wall of that same corner house, and lashed at the roof. It passed by the side of the second-floor window, whereof the top sash was a little open. That would do. It was not his usual line of work, but it looked very promising. He stuck his stick under his waistcoat by way of the collar, and climbed the wall with gingerly care, giving his sound foot all the hard work. The ladder offered no difficulty, but the bottom sash of the window was stiff, and he cracked a pane of glass in pushing at the frame with his stick. The sash lifted, however, in the end, and he climbed into the dark room, being much impeded by the dressing-table. All was quiet in the house, and the ticking of a watch on the dressing-table was distinct in his ear. Josh felt for it, and found it, with a chain hanging from the bow. The house was uncommonly quiet. Could it possibly be a deaden, after all? Josh felt that he ought to have inspected the front windows before climbing the wall, but the excitement of the long-delayed chance had ruined his discretion. At any rate, he would reconnoitre. The door was ajar, and the landing was dark. Down in the drawing-room a gross pimply man, in shirt-sleeves and socks, sat up on the sofa at the sound of an open window higher in the house. He took a drink from the glass by his side, and listened. Then he rose and went softly upstairs. Josh Perrot came out on the landing. It was a long landing, with a staircase at the end, illuminated from somewhere below, so that it was not a case of a deaden after all. He tiptoed along to take a look down the stairs, nevertheless. 
Then he was conscious of a loud breathing as of an overgorged cow, and up behind the stair rails rose a fat head, followed by a fat trunk between white shirt sleeves. Josh sank into the shadow. The man had no light, but discover him he must, sooner or later, for the landing was narrow. Better sooner and suddenly. As the man's foot was on the topmost stair, Josh sprang at him with a straight left-hander that took him on the broad chin, and sent him downstairs in a heap with a crash and a roar. Josh darted back to the room he had just left, scrambled through the window, and slid down the ladder, as he had slid down many another when he was a plasterer's boy. He checked himself short at the bottom, sprang at the wall coping, flung himself over, and ran up the dark by-street, with the sound of muffled roars and screams faint in his ears. He ran a street or two, taking every corner as he came to it, and then fell into a walk. In his flight he had not spared his ankle, and now it was painful. Moreover, he had left his stick behind him in the bedroom, but he was in Highbury, and Cannonbury Road Station was less than half a mile away. He grinned silently as he went, for there was something in the aspect of the overfed householder, and in the manner of his downfall, that gave the adventure a comic flavour. He took a peep at his spoil as he passed under a street lamp, for all watches and chains are the same in the dark, and the thing might be a mere waterbury on a steel guard. But no, both were gold and heavy, a red clock and slang if ever there was one, and so Josh Perrot hobbled and chuckled his way home. Section 24 But indeed, Josh Perrot's luck was worse than he thought. For the gross pimply man was a high mobsman, so very high mobsman that it would have been slander and libel, and a very great expense to write him down a mobsman at all. He paid a rent of a hundred and twenty pounds a year, and heavy rates, and put half a crown into the plate at a very respectable chapel every Sunday. He was, in fact, the king of high mobsmen, spoken of among them as the mogul. He did no vulgar thievery. He never screwed a chat nor claimed a Peter, nor worked the mace. He sat easily at home, and financed, sometimes planned, promising speculations, a large swindle requiring much ground-baiting and preliminary outlay, or a robbery of specie from a mail train, or a bank fraud needing organisation and funds. When the results of such speculations consisted of money, he took the lion's share. When they were expressed in terms of imprisonment, they fell to active and intelligent subordinates. So that for years the mogul had lived an affluent and a blameless life, far removed from the necessity of injudicious bodily exercise, and characterised by every indulgence consistent with a proper suburban respectability. He had patronised, snubbed, or encouraged high mobsmen of more temerarious habit, had profited by their exploits, and had read of their convictions and sentences with placid interest in the morning papers. And after all this, to be robbed in his own house, and knocked downstairs by a casual buster, was an outrage that afflicted the mogul with wrath infuriate. Because that was a sort of trouble that had never seemed a possibility to a person of his eminence, and because the angriest victim of dishonesty is a thief. However, the burglar had got clean away, that was plain, and he had taken the best watch and chain in the house, with the mogul's initials on the back, so that the respectable sufferer sent for the police, and gave his attention to the alleviation of bumps and the washing away of blood. 
In his bodily condition, a light blow was enough to let a great deal of blood, no doubt with benefit. And Josh Perrott's blows were not light in any case. So it came to pass that not only were the police on the lookout for a man with a large gold watch with the mogul's monogram on the back, but also the word was passed as by telegraph through underground channels, till every fence in London was warned that the watch was the mogul's, and ere noon next day there was not one but would as lief have put a scorpion in his pocket as that same toy and tackle that Josh Perrott was gloating over in his back room in old Jago Street. As for Josh, his ankle was bad in the morning, and swelled. He dabbed at it perseveringly with wet rags, and rubbed it vigorously, so that by one o'clock he was able to lace up his boot and go out. He was anxious to fence his plunder without delay, and he made his way to Hoxton. The watch seemed to be something especially good, and he determined to stand out for a price well above the usual figure for the swag of common thieves commanded no such prices as did that of the high mob. All of it was bought and sold on the simple system first called into being seventy years back, and more, by the Prince of Fences, Ike Solomons. A breastpin brought a fixed sum, good or bad, and a roll of cloth brought the fixed price of a roll of cloth, regardless of quality. Thus a silver watch fetched six shillings, never more and never less. A gold watch was worth twice as much. An uncommonly good one, a rich man's watch, would bring as much as eighteen shillings if the thief would judge enough of its quality to venture the demand. And as it commonly took three men to secure a single watch in the open street, one to front, one to snatch, and a third to take from the snatcher, the gains of the toy-getting trade were poor, except to the fence. This time Josh resolved to put pressure on the fence and to do his best to get something as near a sovereign as might be. As to the chain, so thick and heavy, he would fight his best for the privilege of sale by weight. Thus turning the thing in his mind, he entered the familiar doorway of the old clothes shop. "'What is it?' asked the fence, holding out his hand with the customary air of contempt for what was coming by way of discounting it in advance. This particular fence, by the by, never bought anything himself. He inspected whatever was brought on behalf of an occult friend, and the transaction was completed by a shabby third party in an adjoining court, but he had an amazingly keen regard for his friend's interests. Josh put the watch into the extended hand. The fence lifted it to his face, turned it over, and started. He looked hard at Josh, and then again at the watch, and handed it hastily back, holding it gingerly by the bow. "'Don't want dot,' he said. "'Not me. Not him, I mean. No, no.' He turned away, shaking his hand as though to throw off contamination. "'Take it away.' "'What's the matter?' Josh demanded, astonished. "'Is it cause the letters on the back? You could easy send it to church, can't ye?' A watch is sent to church when it is put into another case, but the fence waved away the suggestion. Take it away, I tell you, he said. He, he won't have nothing to do with it. What's the matter with the chain, then? asked Josh. But the fence walked away to the back of the shop, wagging his hands desperately, like a wet man seeking a towel, and repeating only, Nothing to do with it. Take it away. Nothing to do with it. Josh stuffed his prize back into his pocket and regained the street. He was confounded. 
What was wrong with Cohen? Did he suspect a police trick to entrap him? Josh snorted with indignation at the thought. He was no narc. But perhaps the police were showing a pressing interest in Cohen's business concerns just now, and he had suspended fencing for a while. The guess was a lame one, but he could think of none better at the moment, so he pushed his way to the Jago. He would try Mother Gap. Mother Gap would not even take the watch in her hands. Her eyes were good enough at that distance. "'Lord, your spirit,' she said, "'what you been up to now? Wanna get me leg now, do ye? Ain't satisfied with breaking up the house and ruining a poor widow that way, ain't ye? You get out. Go on. I had enough for you.' It was very extraordinary. Was there a general reclamation of fences? but there were men at work at the feathers, putting down boards and restoring partitions, and two of them had been gone over ruinously on their way to work, and now they came and went with four policemen. Possibly Mother Gap feared the observation of carpenters. Be it as it might, there was nothing for it now but Weech's. Mr. Weech was charmed. Dear me, it's a wonderful fine watch, Mr. Pirrit, a wonderful fine watch, and a beautiful chain but he was looking narrowly at the big monogram as he said it. It's really a wonderful article. Here they do get him up, to be sure. Cost a lot of money to, I'll be bound. Might you be thinking of selling it? Yes, of course, replied Josh. That's what I bought it for. Oh, it's a lovely watch, Mr. Perrot, a lovely watch, and the chain matches it. But you mustn't be too hard on me. Shall we say four pound for the little lot? It was more than double Josh's wildest hopes, but he wanted all he could get. Five, he said doggedly. Weech gazed at him with tender rebuke. Five pounds an awful lot of money, Mr. Pirrit, he said. You're too hard on me, really. I only know how I can scrape it up. But it's a beautiful little lot, and I won't aggle. But I ain't got all that money in the house now. I never keep so much money in the house. Sit your neighbourhood, Mr. Perrot. Bring it round tomorrow morning at eleven. All right, I'll come. Five quid, mind. Ah, oh, yes, answered Mr. Weech with a reproving smile. It's really more than I ought. Josh was jubilant and forgot he saw ankle. He had never handled such a sum as five pounds since his fight with Billy Leary years ago, when, indeed, he had stooped to folly in the shape of lavish treating, and so had not enjoyed the handling of the full amount. Mr. Weech also was pleased, for it was a great stroke of business to oblige so distinguished a person as the mogul. There was no telling what advantages it might not lead to in the way of trade. That night the parrots had a hot supper, brought from Walker's cookshop in paper, and at eleven the next morning Josh, twenty yards from Mr. Weech's door, with the watch and chain in his pocket, was tapped on the arm by a constable in plain clothes, while another came up on the other side. "'Mornin', parrot,' said the first constable cheerily. "'We got a little business with you at the station.' "'Me? What for?' "'Oh, well, come along. Perhaps it ain't anything.' unless there's a gold watch and chain on you from Ivory. It's just a turning over. All right, replied Josh resignedly. It's a fair cup. I'll go quiet. That's right, Pirrit. It ain't no good playing the fool, you know. They were moving along, and as they came by Weech's shop, a whiskered face, 
with a patch of shining scalp over it, peeped from behind a curtain that hung at the rear of the bloaters and plum cake in the window. As he saw it, Josh ducked suddenly, wrenching his arm free, and dashed over the threshold. Mr. Weech, whiskers and apron flying, galloped through the door at the back, and the constables sprang upon Josh instantly and dragged him into the street. "'What you mean?' cried the one who knew him, indignantly, and with a significant glance at the other. "'Call it going quiet?' Josh's face was white and staring with rage. "'All right.' He grunted through his shut teeth, after a pause. "'I'll go quiet now. I ain't got nothing agin you.'" Section 25 Dicky's morning theft that day had been but a small one. He had run off with a new two-foot rule that a cabinet-maker had carelessly left on an unfinished office-table at his shop-door in Curtin Road. It was not much, but it might fetch some sort of dinner at Weech's, which would be better than going home, and perhaps finding nothing. So about noon, all ignorant of his father's misfortune, he came by way of Hollywell Lane and Bethnal Green Road to Meakin Street. Mr. Weech looked at him rather oddly, Dicky fancied, when he came in, but he took the two-foot rule with alacrity, and brought Dicky a rasher of bacon and a slice of cake afterward. This seemed very generous. More, Mr. Weech's manner was uncommonly amiable, and when the meal was over, of his own motion, he handed over a supplementary penny. Dicky was surprised, but he had no objection, and he thought little more about it. As soon as he appeared in Luckrow, he was told that his father had been smugged. Indeed, the tidings had filled the Jago within ten minutes. Josh Perrott was walking quietly along Meakin Street, so went the news, when up comes Snuffy, and another split, and smugs him. Josh had a go for Weech's door, to cut his lucky out at the back but was caught. That was a smart notion of Josh's, the Jago opinion ran, to get through Weech's and out into the courts behind, but it was no go. Hannah Perrott sat in her room, inert and lamenting. Dicky could not rouse her, and at last he went off by himself to reconnoitre about Commercial Street Police Station, and pick up what information he might, while a gossip or two came and took Mrs. Perrott for consolation to Mother Gap's. Little M, unwashed, tangled and weeping, could well take care of herself and the room, being more than two years old. Josh Perrott would be brought up tomorrow, Dicky ascertained, at the North London Police Court. So the next morning found Dicky trudging moodily along the two miles of flags to Stoke Newington Road, while his mother and three sympathising friends, who foresaw an opportunity for numerous tiny drops with interesting circumstances to flavour them, took a penny cast on the way in a tram-car. Dicky, with some doubt as to the disposition of the door-keeping policeman toward ragged boys, waited for the four women, and contrived to pass in unobserved among them. Several jagos were in the court, interested not only in Josh's adventure, but in one of Cocko Harnwell's, who had indulged, the night before, in an animated little scramble with three policemen in Dalston, and they waited with sympathetic interest, while the luck was settled of a long string of drunk and disorderlies. At last Josh was brought in, and lurched composedly into the dock, in the manner of one who knew the routine. The police gave evidence of arrest, in consequence of information received, and of finding the watch and chain in Josh's trousers' pocket. The prosecutor, with his head conspicuously bedight with sticking plaster, puffed and grunted up into the witness-box, kissed the book, 
and was a retired commission agent. He positively identified the watch and chain, and he not less positively identified Josh Perrett, whom he had picked out from a score of men in the police yard. This would have been a feat indeed for a man who had never seen Josh, and had only once encountered his fist in the dark, had it not been for the dutiful, though private, aid of Mr. Weech, who, in giving his information, had described Josh and his one suit of clothes with great fidelity, especially indicating a scar on the right cheekbone which would mark him among a thousand. The retired commission agent was quite sure of the prisoner. He had met him on the stairs, where there was plenty of light from a lamp, and the prisoner had attacked him savagely, beating him about the head and flinging him downstairs. The policeman, called by the prosecutor's servant, deposed to finding the prosecutor bruised and bleeding. There was a ladder against the back of the house. A bedroom window had been opened, there were muddy marks on the sill, and he had found the stick, produced, lying in the bedroom. Josh leaned easily on the rail before him while evidence was being given, and said, No, your worship whenever he was asked if he desired to question a witness. He knew better than to run the risk of incriminating himself by challenging the prosecutor's well-coloured evidence, and, as it was a certain case of committal for trial, it would have been useless in any event. He made the same reply when he was asked if he had anything to say before being committed, and straightway was fullied. He lurched serenely out of the dock, waving his cap at his friends in the court, and that was all. The Jagos waited till Cocko Harnwell got his three months, and then retired to neighbouring public houses, but Dicky remembered his little sister and hurried home. The month's session at the Old Bailey had just begun, so that Josh had no long stay at Holloway. Among the Jagos, it was held to be a most creditable circumstance that Josh was to take his trial with full honours at the Old Bailey, and not at mere county sessions at Clerkenwell, like a simple lob-crawler or peter-claimer for Josh's was a case of burglary with serious violence, such as was fitting for the old Bailey, and not even a high mobsman could come to trial with greater glory. As like it's not, it's lagging dues after his other convictions, said Bill Rann, and Jerry Gullen thought so too. Dicky went with his mother and Em to see Josh at Newgate. They stood with other visitors, very noisy, before a double iron railing covered with wire netting, at the farther side whereof stood Josh and other prisoners, while a screaming hubbub of question and answer filled the air. Josh had little to say. He lounged against the farther railing with his hands in his pockets, asked what Cocko Harnwell had got, and sent a message to Bill Rann. While his wife did little more than look dolefully through the wires and pipe, "'Oh, Josh, whatever shall I do?' at intervals, with no particular emotion, while Em pressed her smudgy face against the wires and stared mightily, and while Dicky felt that if he had been younger he would have cried. When time was up, Josh waved his hand and slouched off, and his family turned out with the rest, little Em carrying into later years a memory of father as a man who lived in a cage. In such a case as this, the Jago would have been forever disgraced if Josh Perrott's pals had neglected to get up a break or subscription to pay for his defence. Things were never very flourishing in the Jago, but this was the sort of break a Jago could not shirk, lest it were remembered against him when his own turn came. So enough was collected to brief an exceedingly junior counsel, who did his useless best. But the facts were too strong even for the most inexperienced advocate. The evidence of the prosecutor was nowhere to be shaken, 
and the jury found a verdict of guilty without leaving the box. Indeed, with scarce a formality of collecting their heads together over the rails. Then Josh's past was most unpleasantly raked up before him. He had been convicted of larceny, of assaulting the police, and of robbery with violence. There were two sentences of six months' imprisonment recorded against him, one of three months and two of a month, besides fines. The recorder considered it a very serious offence. Not deterred by the punishments he had already received, the prisoner had proceeded to a worse crime, burglary, and with violence. It was plain that lenience was wasted in such a case, and simple imprisonment was not enough. There must be an exemplary sentence. The prisoner must be kept in penal servitude for five years. Lagging Jews it was, as Bill Rand had anticipated. That Josh Perrott agreed with him was suggested by the fact that from the very beginning he described himself as a painter, because a painter in prison is apt to be employed at times in painting, a lighter and a more desirable task that falls to the lot of his fellows in other trades. In a room by the court Josh saw his wife, Dickie, and Bill Rann, Josh's brother-in-law for the occasion, before his ride to Holloway, his one stopping place on the way to Chelmsford Jail. Little M had been left sprawling in the Jago gutters. This time Hannah Perrott wept in good earnest, and Dickie, notwithstanding his thirteen years, blinked very hard at the wall before him. The arrangement of Josh's affairs was neither a long nor a difficult labour. "'Bose you'll have to do what you can with rush-bags and sacks and match-boxes and what not,' he said to his wife, and she assented. Josh nodded. "'And if you have to go in the house,' he meant the workhouse, "'well, it can't be helped. You won't be no worse off than me.' "'Oh, she'll be all right,' said Bill Rann, jerking his thumb cheerfully towards the missus. "'What about you? Think they'll make it, Parkhurst?' Josh shook his head moodily, Parkhurst being the prison reserved for convicts of less robust habit. He had little hope of enjoying its easier conditions. Presently he said, "'I been put away this time. Fair put away.' "'What?' answered Bill. "'Nark Indus, is it?' Josh nodded. "'Who done it, then? Who narked?' Josh shook his head. "'Never mind,' he said. I don't want him drove out of the jig for I come out. I'd be sorry to miss him. Ah, I know him. That's enough. And then time was up. Josh suffered the missus to kiss him, and shook hands with Bill Rann. Good luck to all your jigos, he said. Dickie shook hands too, and said, Good-bye, father, in a voice of such laboured cheerfulness that a grin burst for a moment mid Josh's moody features as he was marched away, and so departed for the place in Jago idiom, where the dogs don't bite. Section 26 It was Father Sturt's practice to visit every family in his parish in regular order, but small as the parish was, insignificant indeed in mere area, its population exceeded 8,000, so that the round was one of many months, for visiting but was one among innumerable duties. But Josh Perrott's lagging secured his family a special call, not that the circumstances were in any way novel, or at all uncommon. Not even that the vicar had any hope of being able to help. He was but the one man who could swim in a howling sea of human wreckage. In the Jago, wives like Hannah Perrott, 
temporarily widowed by the absence of husbands in the country, were to be counted in scores, and most were in worse case than she, in the matter of dependent children. Father Sturt's house list revealed the fact that in old Jago Street alone, near seventy of the males were at that time on ticket of leave. In the Perrot case, indeed, the sufferers were fortunate. As things went, Mrs. Perrot had but herself and the child of two to keep, for Dicky could do something, whether good or bad, for himself. The vicar might try to get regular work for Dicky, but it would be a vain toil, for he must tell an employer what he knew of Dicky's past and of that other situation. He could but give the woman the best counsel at his command, and do what he might to quicken any latent spark of energy. So he did his best, and that was all. The struggle lay with Hannah Perrott. She had been left before, and more than once, but then the periods had been shorter, and, as a matter of fact, things had fallen out so well that scarce more than a meal here and there had had to be missed, though. When they came, the meals were apt to be but of crusts. And now there was more trouble ahead, for though she began her lonely time but with one small child on hand, she knew that ere long there would be two. Of course, she had worked before, not only when Josh had been in, but at other times to add to the family resources. She was a clumsy needlewoman, else she might hope to earn some ninepence or shilling a day at making shirts, by keeping well to the needle for sixteen hours out of the twenty-four, and from the whole sum there would be no deductions except for needles and cotton, and what the frugal employer might choose to subtract for work to which she could devise an objection. But as it was, she must do her best to get some sack-making. They paid one and sevenpence a hundred for sacks, and with speed and long hours she could make a hundred in four days. Rush bag-making would bring even more, which would be desirable, considering the three and sixpence a week for rent which, with the payments for other rooms, made the rent of the crazy den in Old Jago Street about equal, space for space, to that of a house in Onslow Square. And then there was more lucrative employment still, but that had to be looked for at intervals only, one not to be counted on at all, in fact, for it was a prize and many sought after it. This was the making of matchboxes. For making one hundred and forty outside cases, with paper label and sandpaper, and the same number of trays to slide into them, a gross of complete boxes, or two hundred and eighty-eight pieces in all, one got tuppence farthing. Indeed, for a special size, one even got a farthing a gross more, and all the wood and the labels and the sandpaper were provided free, so that the fortunate operative lost nothing out of the tuppence farthing but the cost of the paste, and the string for tying up the boxes into regularly numbered batches, and the time employed in fetching the work and taking it back again. And if seven gross were to be got, and could be done in a day, and it was really not very difficult for the skilful hand who kept at work long enough, the day's income was one and threepence three farthings less expenses, still better that than the shirts. But the work was hard to get. As the public-spirited manufacturers complained, People would buy Swedish matches, whereas if people would support home industries and buy no matches but theirs, they would be able to order many a tuppence farthing's worth of boxes more. There might be collateral sources of income, but these were doubtful and irregular. Probably Dicky would bring in a few coppers now and again. Then judicious attendance at churches, chapels and prayer meetings beyond the Jago borders was rewarded by coal tickets, boots and the like. 
It was necessary to know just where and when to go and what to say, else the sole result might be loss of time. There was a church in Bethnal Green, for instance, which it would be foolish to enter before the end of the litany, for then you were in good time to get your half-quarter hundredweight of coals, but at other places they might object to so late an appearance. Above all, one must know the ropes. There were several women in the Jago who made almost a living in this way alone. They were experts. They knew every fund, every meeting-house, all the comings and goings of the gullible, insomuch that they would take black umbrage at any unexpected difficulty in getting what they demanded. Why, one would say, I had to pitch such a bleeding oily tail, I earned it twice over. But these were the proficient, and proficiency in the trade was an outcome of long experience working on a foundation of natural gifts, and Hannah Perrott could never hope to be among them. Turning these things in her mind, she addressed herself to her struggle. She managed to get some sacks, but for a week or two she could make nothing like twenty-five a day, though Dicky helped. Her fingers got raw, but she managed to complete a hundred within the first week. They might have been better done, as the employer said when he saw them, but she got her full one and sevenpence. She pawned her boots for fourpence, and wore two old odd ones of Josh's, and she got tuppence on a petticoat. Dicky also helped a little, and at the end of a fortnight there came a godsend in the shape of material for matchboxes. Mrs. Perrot was slow with them at first, but Dicky was quick, and even little M began to learn to spread paste. Section 27 Dicky grew slighter and lanker, dark about the eyes, and weaker. He was growing longitudinally, and that made his lateral wasting the quicker and the more apparent. A furtive, frighted look hung ever in his face, a fugitive air about his whole person. His mother's long face was longer than ever, and blacker under the eyes than Dicky's own, and her weak open mouth hung at the corners as that of a woman faint with weeping. Little M's knees and elbows were knobs in the midst of limbs of unnatural length. Rarely could a meal be seen ahead, and when it came, it made Dicky doubtful whether or not hunger were really caused by eating but the chief distress was to see that little M cried not like a child, but silently, as she strove to thread needles or to smear matchbox labels. And when good fortune brought matchboxes, there was undue loss on the tuppence farthing in the matter of paste. The stuff was a foul mess, sour and faint, and was kept in a broken teacup, near which Dicky had detected his sister sucking her fingers, for in truth little M stole the paste. On and off, by one way and another, Mrs. Perrot made enough to keep the rent paid with indifferent regularity, and sometimes was a copper or so left over. She did fairly well, too, at the churches and prayer meetings. People saw her condition, and now and again would give her something beyond the common dole, so that she learnt the trick of looking more miserable than usual at such places. The roof provided, Dicky felt that his was the task to find food. Alone, he might have rubbed along clear of starvation, but there were his mother and his sister. Lack of victuals shook his nerve and made him timid. Moreover, his terror grew greater than ever at the prospect of being caught in a theft. He lay awake at night and sweated to think of it. Who would bring in things from the outer world for Mother and M then? And the danger was worse than ever. He had felt the police court birch, and it was very, very bad but he had to take it every day and take it almost without a tear, rather than the chance of a reformatory. Magistrates were unwilling to send boys to reformatories while both father and mother were at hand to control them, 
for that were relieving the parents of their natural responsibility. But in a case like Dicky's, a schooling was a very likely thing, so that Dicky, as he prowled, was torn between implacable need and the fear of being cut off from all chance of supplying it. It was his rule never to come home without bringing something, were it no more than a mildewed crust. It was a resolve impossible to keep at times, but at those times it was two in the morning ere he would drag himself, pallid and faint, into the dark room where others might be, probably were, lying awake and unfed. Rather than face such a homecoming, he had sometimes ventured on a more difficult feat than stealing in the outer world. He had stolen in the Jago. Sam Cash, for instance, had lost a bloater. Dicky never ate at Weech's now. Rarely, indeed, would he take payment in kind, unless it were for something of smaller value than the average of his poor pilferings, and then he carried the food home. But cheaper things could be bought elsewhere, so that usually he insisted on money payments, to the grief of Mr. Weech, who set forth the odiousness of ingratitude at length, though his homilies had no sort of effect on Dicky's morals. Father Sturt saw that Hannah Perrott gained no ground in her struggle, and urged her to apply for outdoor parish relief, promising to second her request with the guardians. But with an odd throwback to the respectability of her boiler-making ancestry, she disliked the notion of help from the parish, and preferred to remain as she was, for there at least her ingrained inertness seemed to side with some phantom of self-respect. To her present position she had subsided by almost imperceptible degrees, and she was scarce conscious of a change. But to parish relief there was a distinct and palpable step, a step that, on the whole, it seemed easier not to take. But it was with eagerness that she took a maternity society's letter, wherewith the vicar had provided himself on her behalf. For her time was drawing near. Section 28 Josh Perrott well understood the advantage of good prison behaviour, and after six months in his Chelmsford cell he had earned the right to a visit from friends. But none came. He had hardly expected that anybody would, and asked for the order merely on the general principle that a man should take all he can get, useful or not. For there would have been a five-shilling fare to pay for each visitor from London, and Hannah Perrott could as easily have paid five pounds. And indeed she had other things to think of. Kiddo Cook had been less observed of late in the Jago. In simple fact, he was at work. He found that a steady week of porterage at Spitalfields Market would bring him sixteen shillings, and perhaps a little more, and he had taken Father Sturt's encouragement to try another week, and a week after that. Father Sturt, too, had cunningly stimulated Kiddo's ambitions, till he cherished aspirations to a fruit and vegetable stall, with a proper tarpaulin cover for bad weather though he cherished them in secret, confident that they were of his own independent conception. Perhaps the parrot saw as much of Kiddo as did anybody at this time. For Kiddo, seeing how it went with them, though indeed it went as badly with others too, built up laboriously a solemn and most circumstantial lie. There was a friend of his, a perfect gentleman, who used a beer shop by Spitalfields Market, and who had just started an extensive and complicated business in the general provision line. He sold all sorts of fruit and vegetables fresh, and all sorts of meat, carrots, cabbages, saveloys, fried fish, and peas pudding cooked. His motto was, everything of the best. But he had the misfortune to be quite unable himself to judge whether his goods were really of the best or not, 
in consequence of an injury to his palate, arising from a blow on the mouth with a quart pot, inflicted in the heat of discussion by a wealthy acquaintance, so that he, being a perfect gentleman, had requested Kiddo Cook, out of the friendship he bore him, to drop in occasionally and test his samples. "'Take a good big whack, you know,' said he, "'and get the advice of a friend or two, if you ain't sure.' so Kiddo would take frequent and handsome wax accordingly, to the perfect gentleman's delight, and, not quite knowing what to do with all the wax, or being desirous of an independent opinion on them, there was some confusion between these two motives, he would bring Mrs. Perrott's samples from time to time, and hope it wouldn't inconvenience her. It never did. It was late in the dusk of a rainy day that Kiddo Cook stumped into old Jago Street with an apple in his pocket for M., it was not much, but money was a little short, and at any rate the child would be pleased. As he climbed the stairs, he grew conscious of sounds of anguish, muffled by the parrot's door. There might have been sobs, and there seemed to be groans. Certainly little M was crying, though but faintly, and something, perhaps boot-heels, scraped on the boards. Kiddo hesitated a little, and then knocked softly. The knock was unnoticed, so in the end he pushed the door open. The day had been a bad one with the parrots. Dicky had gone out early and had not returned. His mother had tramped unfed to the sack-makers, but there was no work to be got. She tried the rush-bag people, with a like result. Nor was any matchbox material being given out. An unregarded turnip had rolled from a shop into the gutter, and she had seized it stealthily. It was not in nature to take it home whole, and once the corner was cleared, she dragged herself Jago Ward, gnawing the root furtively as she went and so she joined M at home late in the afternoon. Kiddo pushed the door open and went in. At his second step he stood staring, and his chin dropped. "'Good God!' said Kiddo Cook. He cleared the stairs in three jumps. He stood but an instant on the flags before the house, with a quick glance each way, and then dashed off through the mud. Pigeony Pole was erratic in residence, but just now she had a room by the roof of a house in Jago Row, and up the stairs of this house Kiddo ran, calling her by name. "'Go over to the Pirates, quick!' he shouted from the landing below, as Poll appeared at her door. "'Rum, for God's sake, or the woman'll croak! I'm off to Father's!' And he rushed away to the vicar's lodgings. Father Sturt emerged at a run, and made for a surgeon's in Shoreditch High Street. And when the surgeon reached Hannah Perrot, he found her stretched on her ragged bed, tended, with anxious clumsiness by Pigeony Pole, while little M, tearful and abashed, sat in a corner and nibbled a bit of turnip. Hannah Perrot had anticipated the operation of the Maternity Society letter, and another child of the Jago had come unconsenting into its black inheritance. Father Sturt met the surgeon as he came away in the later evening, and asked if all were well. The surgeon shrugged his shoulders. "'People would call it so,' he said. "'The boy's alive, and so is the mother. "'But you and I may say the truth. "'You know the Jago far better than I. "'Is there a child at all in this place "'that wouldn't be better dead, still better unborn? "'But does a day pass without bringing you "'just such a parishioner? "'Here lies the Jago, a nest of rats, "'breeding, breeding as only rats can. "'We say it is well.' On high moral grounds we uphold the right of rats to multiply their thousands. Sometimes we catch a rat, and we keep it a little while, nourish it carefully, and put it back into its nest to propagate its kind. Father Sturt walked a little way in silence, 
Then he said, You are right, of course, but who will listen if you shout it from the housetops? I might try to proclaim it myself, if I had time and energy to waste. But I have none. I must work, and so must you. The burden grows day by day, as you say. The thing's hopeless, perhaps, but that is not for me to discuss. I have my duty. The surgeon was a young man, but Shoreditch had helped him over most of his enthusiasms. That's right, he said. Quite right. People are so very genteel, aren't they? He laughed, as at a droll remembrance. But hang it, man, men like ourselves needn't talk as though the world was built of hard bake. It's a mighty relief to speak truth with a man who knows. A man not rotted through with sentiment. Think how few men we trust with the power to give a fellow creature a year in jail, and how carefully we pick them. Even damnation is out of fashion, I believe, among theologians. But any noxious wretch may damn human souls to the jago, one after another, year in, year out, and we respect his right, his sacred right. At the posties the two men separated. The rain, which had abated for a space, came up on a driving wind, and whipped Dicky Perrot home to meet his new brother. End of Part 5